Good evening, everyone. Uh, let's start by cultivating our motivation. So when my mind feels overwhelmed or discouraged, as it has at times this week, just looking at what's been happening in, here in America, I like to think of the story of the boy and the starfish. And I'm guessing you've heard this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. So the story goes that there's a beach where there are a lot of starfish that have washed up on the shore, covering almost the entire shore. And there's a young boy who's tossing the starfish back into the sea, one by one. And some grown-up on the beach sees this little boy and asks him, why are you bothering to do this at all? You know, what does it matter? This whole beach is covered with starfish. And this little boy says, well, it mattered to that one. And he keeps going and tossing the starfish back. So we really don't know what the effects of our virtuous actions are in the very long run. That there's really no virtue too small for us to engage in. Because it does matter. It matters to us. It matters to our mind. It matters to the beings around us. And if we have conviction in the effects of karma, we know that one of the key principles of karma is that a small seed can bear a tremendous ripening result. A small acorn grows into this huge tree. So with that in mind, let's cherish this brief time we have together to listen to the Dharma, to share together our thoughts on what the Buddha taught. And may it be another drop in the bucket of all the droplets we're accumulating until our minds are completely purified and we become fully awakened. And we do this with the benefit of all sentient beings in mind, knowing that as we sit here with the freedom and fortune to reflect on the teachings, there are countless other beings who don't have this opportunity, who are experiencing gross suffering, whose minds are overwhelmed and tormented, or who are just completely distracted, having no interest at all in doing something other than pursuing pleasure and their own interests. So it is with the benefit of each and every single being in mind just like each and every single starfish on the beach that we are doing our practice so that one day we may be able to be of total and complete benefit when we are fully awakened. So um, we're still on the topic of joyous effort this week. And in preparing for this uh, sharing 
class review. Um, I guess I spent a lot of time thinking about why it's called armor-like joyous effort, which is the first type of joyous effort that we try and cultivate. I guess I've never seen armor. It's just weird to me, the metaphor, you know, it's like so removed from my direct experience. I've never seen it. I have no interest in armor. I would prefer never to have to wear it. But I think as we read the Lam Rim, um, and as I've practiced a little bit more, I can see why our minds need armor. Yeah, we need some form of protection. And that's what joyous effort can be. Last week, we talked about how as we get to know our minds, it can start to look really overwhelming, right? the kind of work we have to do. And yeah, it's not easy to practice the Bodhisattva path. I was thinking about how the second retreat I sat here, uh, you know, every year we do a three-month winter retreat. Like so much anger came up in my mind. It was just unbelievable to me anyway at the time. Because, you know, I like to think of myself as someone who doesn't get angry, who's very kind and pleasant. And then you sit for a while and it's like, ooh, okay, (laughs) a lot of anger. And I remember having to like get help from Venerable, like, I'm having all these thoughts, and I'm so upset. And she was so calm, and she said, yeah, you're just seeing levels of anger you haven't seen before. There, there, you know, go apply the antidotes. <laughs> Sent me back to the hall. So, okay, <laughs> yeah. So I think that's how our journey is going to be. I don't know, as people have been here and your mind gets quiet, you get to see things about yourself that you maybe didn't expect. Yeah, <laughs> some nodding heads. Yeah. So we can have confidence, though, knowing that we've met a path that helps us to work with our minds. So that's one piece, yeah, just working with our afflictions. We need the courage to do that. And then the other piece is benefiting sentient beings. Yeah, when we think about how complex and diverse each and every sentient being is, I don't know. I mean, as we look at our own minds, we see that every single person has the same kinds of afflictions, maybe different experiences in this life, but the same ups and downs, So in order for us to develop these qualities, the skillful means, the wisdom to benefit each and every single sentient being, it's going to take a long time. I mean, just think of the people you have trouble talking to now. Yeah. And just think of the qualities you might need to develop to be able to have an open heart towards them, to reach out, to connect. So that's what a Buddha does, right? Or bodhisattvas do are constantly cultivating all these good qualities over time so that they can reach out to each and every single one of us at whatever level we need to connect to to them with. I'm always um, astounded by my arrogance in this regard. You know, um, some years ago, there was a teaching by Ken Rinpoche, Lama Lundrup, the former abbot of Kopan Monastery in Singapore. He gave this very traditional teaching going through verses about fortitude. And I, I was like, okay, that's great. (laughs) <laughs> don't really understand what's going on. So all of us are standing there with our hands bowed as he's going out. And this woman rushes up to him and is like, Ken Rinpoche, will you name my dog? Please name my dog. And I remember standing there going, oh, come on. Rinpoche just gave this incredible Dharma teaching and you're asking him to name your dog. So I tell Venerable this story, uh, like thinking, I'm such a good student. Of course, I went back and no, I did not go back and read the verses. Um, and Venerable says, well, that's the level... Uh, Ken Rinpoche was able to connect with her at. Of course he named her dog. Of course he stopped and gave the dog a Dharma name. Because that might be what helps her to connect with the Dharma. Every day she's going to think about that word, I don't know what name he gave, you know, of that quality that he named the dog after. And that's her connection with the Dharma. You say, you know, that's how 
uh, bodhisattvas are benefiting sentient beings constantly in whatever way is possible. So that gave me pause to think about, you know, the ways I value uh, benefiting others and yeah, knowing how to connect with each and every sentient being. And I think the hard thing too is that as we practice the path, as we move forward with our good aspirations and good intentions, we find that um, people don't always appreciate them, <laughs> right? It's like, as you practice the Bodhisattva path, it's not like people are going to be like throwing a party for you because you've done such a good job. Or as Venerable always says, you become a Buddha and then what do you get? Some fruit <laughs> in a bowl. <laughs> like, and then what? You know, it's not like people are going to be like clapping for you or whatever. And as we can see from our own experience, um, people are just going to ignore you. That's what sentient beings do, right? We've ignored the Buddha's advice for a long time. Uh, sentient beings are going to argue with you. You're going to teach them for hours and hours, and then you're just going to go, sentient beings are going to go and do the complete opposite of what you've told them. And as a Buddha, you can't give up. I mean, of course, that thought never occurs to the Buddha, but often we can see in the example of our teachers too, especially because we live here with Venerable, who I'm sure we all have collected experience where she's given us the same advice again and again, and we've gone off and done the opposite, and she hasn't said, get lost. You know, she's there to help us again and again. So I think what keeps us going on the path is having this vast motivation that's called armor-like joyous effort. Yeah. The Lamrim Chemo gives us a handy example. <laughs> and it, I'm just going to read this section. It says, When bodhisattvas joyously persevere prior to actively engaging themselves, so before even engaging on all the bodhisattva deeds, yeah, they put on the armor of a preliminary enthusiastic thought. So the mind is, you know, the thought is our armor. And it's a very big thought. Yeah, I'm going to read it slowly because even just reading it, my mind started to space out. <laughs> so this is the preliminary enthusiastic thought. Such as, for a trillion sets of three immeasurably great eons, each composed of days as long as a thousand great eons, I shall not relinquish my practice of joyous perseverance. For the sake of relieving the suffering of a single living being, I would rejoice at remaining only as a hell being until I attain Buddhahood. As I exert myself in this manner for the sake of complete enlightenment, what need is there to mention my perseverance over a shorter period or in the face of lesser suffering? So that's a big thought. <laughs> I think... Um, as Venerable often says, and as our teachers, Lama Zopar and Bache too often says, yeah, we make these vast aspirations so that we know what we're trying to work towards. Yeah, when no bodhisattva ever said, well, okay, we'll just benefit those five people I know from my life in childhood, <laughs> right? Like, that's just not enough. It's not going to get us very far. But if we train ourselves to think incredibly vast, immeasurably vast in terms of time and space and number, that just expands the mind. Yeah, whether or not we can do it right here and now is not the point. Yeah, the point is to expand the mind like that. So that's what we're working up towards. And this, is, this kind of mind is what's going to protect our practice. Um, I want to read you a section from Guided Meditations on the Stages of the Path that, uh, by Venerable Children. And really this is, like I've mentioned before, um, in setting a motivation in the morning. I found this section of her book so helpful just taking the time to set your own personal motivation, you know, to write it out in words that mean something to you. And 
and it changes time from month to month, year to year. I don't know. So I think that's something we can all take back. Yeah, to take time to think, you know, what, what's, what am I interested in? Why, why do I bother sitting every day to work with my mind? Why do I bother coming to teachings? What's my Dharma motivation? So here's what Venerable says. The importance of having an expansive Dharma motivation cannot be emphasized enough. And not only does it determine the karmic or long-term effect of our actions, but it also gives meaning and purpose to our lives right now. It enables us to have joy and courage to continue practicing the Dharma. Over the years that I've been a monastic and Dharma student, I've noticed that the people who cultivate a long-term motivation are able to sustain their practice their entire lives. They remain peaceful even when they face difficulties the rest of us would moan about. On the other hand, I've seen people who have excellent external conditions for practice but cannot sustain their Dharma practice. Most of them seem to have weak long-term motivations. Perhaps they began by being inspired by a determination to be free or bodhicitta, but over time they did not nourish that intention and so it gradually deteriorated. The eight worldly concerns, craving sense pleasures, possessions, praise, and a good reputation, as well as aversion to not getting these four snuck back in. They lost their self-confidence and trust in the efficacy of the Dharma as old habits reasserted themselves. This is indeed sad. For this reason, continuously nurturing our positive intentions and respecting our spiritual aspirations are essential. It helped me a lot because it helped me to stop like beating myself up for being lazy, or you know, it just made it so clear. Like, why am I not getting to the cushion every day? And when I sat and looked at it, I thought, oh, because my my real motivation for meditating when I started as a beginner was to relax. Yeah, and not, not, not all meditation sessions are going to be relaxing, right? Sometimes you sit and your mind's just stuck or you fall asleep or you're like just totally distracted. So because my motivation was just to sit down and get some kind of hit of pleasure or, you know, oh, okay, the mind's calm, that's good, space out. Then on the days I didn't feel like doing it, I didn't get to the cushion, Yeah. So until I started to learn more about the Dharma and to see how working with my mind was beneficial in the very long term, then I could start to develop a more stable daily practice. I don't know, do people have thoughts about this? Experiences you might have had from the benefits of generating a powerful long-term motivation? I'm not sure if I'm going to add uh something substantial but I'm just for me it's kind of similar I think it's for everybody kind of similar right you start your, your meditation practice with the idea of getting a better life in the beginning I think you don't, there must be some motivation there and then uh, yeah as you continue you, you just yeah you, you shift your motivation and then indeed it becomes much more regular so well I'm just affirming what you said <laughs> yeah but that's what Venerable says in her book too. It's okay to start wherever we are and then to know that we can keep expanding. Right? That's the power of the mind. As we learn the Dharma, we can keep growing the motivation bigger and bigger. And that's how the Lamrim, the stages of the path to awakening work too. Yeah, you start out with a specific, like even getting on the first scope, yeah, may I have a better next life. That's hard enough. Yeah, then you expand it to may I get out of cyclic existence altogether and then may I attain Buddhahood. So we go step by step like that. So I do think it's important to, at the very beginning, just 
repeatedly remind ourselves of the benefits of having a vast long-term motivation so that we generate one. And that's what keeps us on the track. Yeah, because we don't get discouraged, we won't get distracted, and we're very clear about our spiritual goals. Um, one of the benefits of joyous perseverance, as it says in the Lamrim, this is Lama Tsongkhapa quoting the ornament of Mahayana Sutras. He says, One who has joyous perseverance is not brought down by prosperity, afflictions, discouragement, or petty attainments. I thought this list was quite um, interesting to look at too, you know, that the first thing he lists is prosperity. Yeah, how are we brought down by prosperity in our spiritual practice? You know, the way I thought about it was, um, you know, if you create a lot of positive... The, the cause of prosperity in this life is positive karma from past lives, yeah? But if we do that without a clear motivation, dedicating it for a spiritual path in order to attain awakening, it can ripen in very worldly prosperity. You were generous, and it just finishes in your next life. You're very rich. And then, and then what? Yeah? And um, as we have seen, many people are using their wealth for um, non-virtuous purposes. It doesn't guarantee that we will continue to generate um, the causes for future prosperity. So I think that's quite um, sobering to think about that. You know, that as we practice the path, as we generate more and more merit, if we don't dedicate it with a clear motivation, if we don't have the armor of joyous effort, it can lead us, we can still go astray very easily. Um, then, of course, we are af um, affected by our afflictions, discouragement, as Venerable Jigme covered at length last week, and that we'll continue to look at this week, and also petty attainments. <laughs> yeah, giving up the path for low-grade happiness yeah, it's always very scary to look at um, people who appear to be very accomplished teachers or are very charismatic, and then it seems like they get sucked in by the eight worldly concerns. Right along the way, just oh wow, I have all these students. Uh, they treat me like I'm special, and then they start to abuse their power. They ask for special favors of all kinds. I mean, those are very petty attainments, but. I don't know, I can see it in my own mind, for sure. I remember there was once in Singapore, oh, this was a terrible experience, honestly, where Venerable Chidron um, was sick, yeah, and she lost her voice. So I had, and then she wrote me a note saying, please do the talk tonight. And I had gone out to run errands or whatever, and I came back, I saw this note, I thought, oh my God. <laughs> it's like, okay, you just have to do it. All these people who are coming. So I went, you know, I just led the meditation, I read the notes and did the talk. And at the end of the talk, people were like, wow, you did such a great job. You know, people were lining up to thank me. There was applause. Someone, some old friend of the Abbey came up and was like, we are so proud of you from Singapore. And this was in Singapore. And I just watched my head go bigger and bigger, bigger than the whole room. And it was really very scary to just see the effect of that. You know, when you're put in this position, it's actually very dangerous. And it's amazing how Venerable works with her mind, I think, and all our teachers. They know that it's just, it's not even an attainment. <laughs> yeah, just, um, she always says the virtue ripening on the student's side, right? That's why people are receptive, yeah? You're just the vessel for the teachings. So yeah, it was amazing to watch my mind get so big and get hooked. And of course, Venerable being a kind teacher went <laughs> immediately. <laughs> yeah, don't get full of yourself. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> is what you say. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Armor like joyous effort, having a clear motivation, protects us the whole way to Buddhahood. Yeah. And after we've generated this powerful motivation, it's what helps us to engage in the second kind of joyous effort, that, that of gathering virtues through practicing the six perfections. And then the third kind of joyous effort, which is working for the benefit of others. Um, yeah, I wanted to share a small story too of another time I felt that my mind was very much protected by armor-like joyous effort or some similitude of it. Um, and that happened actually when my dad came here to the Abbey. You know, so my, my family is like a big source of attachment for me. Yeah, grew up very close to my parents. Yeah, when, when I first told them I wanted to ordain, my mother cried for years and I thought, okay, maybe it's a bad idea. And so a big piece of my um, developing the resolve to ordain involved meditating a lot on paying, uh, repaying the kindness of my parents. I had to get very clear within myself that I was doing this in order to repay their kindness. That even if they didn't believe that it wasn't part of their worldview, that was what was true for me. So I meditated a lot on this, and then I ordained. And then about one year into ordination, my, my folks came. And so I was very wary, just thinking, okay, here are the objects of attachment, be careful, <laughs> you know. So I kept a distance. And then one day I was working in the woods with my dad, right? When suddenly, um, in the middle of, you know, moving logs and all that, I felt like he, he suddenly like unleashed all the big emotional hooks. Yeah, everything came out full force, you know, the like, so-and-so has grandkids, why you will never have grandchildren for me. <laughs> you know, uh, I want to pay for your PhD, how about that? Or all kinds of things, uh, including, um, do you know how hard it's been for me now that I have to face my colleagues and tell them that you've become a nun? <laughs> so, you know, so I just listened to him. And what I was amazed by was that I didn't get hooked. My mind was so calm, you know. The old me would have just gotten very frustrated or, or felt like I needed to fight back or push back. But here were all these hooks, and I just watched. You could see the hook come. And I was like, mm -hmm, okay. Like, okay, that's your opinion. All right, I understand. I understand you're sad. Okay. And I didn't have to fight back, and I didn't feel I needed to engage in whatever he was saying. Yeah, so suddenly I was like, oh, I'm protected by my motivation. I thought, oh, because I'm so happy and clear that I, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I don't need to prove myself to him. I don't need anybody to applaud and say, you know, good nun. It's like, <laughs> this is what I want to do with my life. I believe it's beneficial. Yeah, so, and I'm just going to keep going. So I felt very much that um, having a clear motivation protects us from wasting our time on things that don't actually matter that don't actually bring us happiness. Because I, if I didn't get clear about what I wanted, I would have spent my whole life trying to make my parents happy. Now, much of my life has been spent doing that, you know, trying to do whatever I thought they wanted me to do, thinking that was how I would repay their kindness. And of course, that didn't get anywhere. And your parents are never going to be happy completely. <laughs> you are not the cause of their happiness. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, with armor-like joyous effort, we'll actually get clear about what brings happiness and how to avoid the causes of suffering. So, um, in that regard, I wanted to read you to a story from Gelik Rinpoche's commentary on Shanti Devas engaging in a bodhisattva's deeds, uh, which is the core text that uh, Lama Tsongkhapa is referring to in this chapter. He's commenting on chapter 7 on joyous perseverance. So this is Gelik Rinpoche. He tells a story about an outstanding 18th century Tibetan master the great master Gungtang Kongchuk Tenpei Trunme. So this master was asked by his disciples for his biography. 
And being a great master, he replied, I have nothing to say. So the disciples kept on asking, right? That's our job. Please, please tell us about your life. And then he finally gave in and he said, all right, I am going to tell you my biography. So when he announced this, many people came from everywhere wanting to hear this. Then he said, for the first 20 years of my life, I kept on thinking, I am a kid. I am a kid. Then for the next 20 years, I kept on thinking, I should do something. I should do something. Then the next 20 years, I spent on thinking, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. That is how I wasted 60 years. That is how I wasted my life. That is my autobiography. <laughs> it's, it's a scary story. So then Gelek Rinpoche continues and says, I don't think Konchok Tempe Trimi really had any laziness. His collected works go into 12 volumes. <laughs> but that is how he said it, and it was probably meant for people like me. And also that's Gelek Rinpoche being humble. <laughs> it's probably meant for people like us. Yeah, or me, for sure. Right? But that's the three types of laziness. Yeah, do we remember them? Test. <laughs> What's the first type of laziness? Yeah, the laziness of procrastination, right? I am a kid. I am a kid. Yeah, I'm young. You know, we'll wait till I'm older to practice. It's okay. Yeah, we'll put it off for some other time. Uh, when I'm 60, I will go on retreat for three years and so forth. Right. <laughs> then the second kind of laziness? Busy, busy, right? The next 20 years, I should do something. I should do something. I should really buy a house. I should really buy a car. I should really finance that 30-year loan, <laughs> whatever it is, yeah. I should really get the best clothes to attract the best partner, and so forth. Yep. I should do something. And then the third kind of laziness? Discouragement. Discouragement. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. And thankfully, there are antidotes, right? If we can recognize the laziness in the first place, yeah, really... Um, the first retreat I sat here, I remember I read uh, Genlam Rimba's book on how to uh, cultivate calm abiding. And in it, he says, really, for beginners, our biggest obstacle is laziness. And I've already reading that, I felt discouraged. Like, what? Like, what do you mean I'm lazy? <laughs> I'm so hardworking. <laughs> but as I read the descriptions of laziness, I was like, it's true. Yeah, and learning to recognize them in my own mind, especially the laziness of discouragement, I think was really very helpful. Because I, you know, when I see that I'm procrastinating, I imagine the antidote is to kick myself in the pants, which is not the antidote. Yeah, that's just the laziness of discouragement. Right? Like Venerable Jigme was saying last week, that mind is really tricky. You know, it says all kinds of crazy, untrue things to you, and you believe them. So I think the first piece is just to recognize it. And then we can apply the antidotes. So do we remember some of these antidotes from last week? How to... <laughs> Don't call on me. There's nowhere else to look, really. It's a small room. Yes, Karen. <laughs> hmm? Yeah, meditating on death and impermanence. Right? There were many um, hair-raising verses from Shantideva that were shared last week. But really, I do think that's tremendously helpful. I think, yeah, this is... That's all I've been meditating on. I mean, and other things, but really, again and again... Mm, ever since I read the first chapter of Aryadeva's 400 stanzas, right, which is all about death and impermanence, and it says, as long as we don't get this, the door to insight is closed. Yeah, we're not going to 
practice the path if we think we're going to live forever, uh, if we think that somehow we are going to be that one special person who is just not going to die, <laughs> which we all have this sort of bizarre thoughts hanging around there, right? Like somehow we will, we will beat the lot of death. Somehow we're going to accomplish whatever we want at our own, on our own terms. It's like, no. So meditating on death helps us to get very clear about our priorities. Yeah, it's not meant to make us depressed. It actually helps us to generate that powerful motivation that keeps us moving in the right direction. So yes, meditating on death. Uh, what else? What else can we do to overcome these types of laziness? Right, so meditating on the defects of cyclic existence. Yeah, for sure. Of which death is one of them. Yeah. You know, I was um, listening back to the Motivation Venerable set uh, on the week when the shooting happened in Orlando, Florida. And then she said, well, you know, this is a week where suffering is very clear to us. Yeah, especially this week, right? Where with the shooting in Las Vegas, suffering is so present in our minds. But she said, why is it that we're in, it's not present like this in, at other times? Yeah, because we are constantly in this very precarious situation. Why did, you know, only when like really horrific gross suffering happens, then we're like, whoa, you know, could have been like, what are we going to do, right? But she was saying, we are constantly under the influence of afflictions and karma. Yeah? These are polluted ag aggregates. The body is not our friend. It's going to fall apart, cause us suffering, you know, betray us. Yeah. After all the time you've spent taking care of it. <laughs> It rots. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the defects of cyclic existence um, are ever present, and we have to meditate on them repeatedly so that we don't get caught up in I don't know learning how to tend to bonsai plants or spending a lot of time becoming the best knitter. I mean, all of us have had all these uh, detours, I'm sure, into all kinds of I don't know being the fastest text message sender, you name it. So we don't get caught up in those um, whirlpools, right? And instead, stay the course. And what else? So how do we overcome the third kind of laziness, which is, um, of discouragement? What can we meditate on? Yeah, our Buddha nature. And that will take us to where we left off last week in engaging in a Bodhisattva's deeds. So I'm just going to continue with um, this chapter in the Lamrim Chenmo. This is the great treatise on the stages of the path to awakening by Lama Tsongkhapa. We sometimes call him J. Rinpoche, so that's who I'm talking about. J meaning like master, lord, Rinpoche, precious one. Yeah. So, um, Venerable Jigme stopped at verse 15 of engaging in the Bodhisattva's deeds, right, covering some of the antidotes to the first two types of laziness. Right. So that's how we generate joyous effort. Yeah, first of all, recognizing its benefits, right? thinking to ourselves, yeah, why would we want to develop such a state of mind? For what purpose? Yeah, why do we even want to begin this path? And then next, identifying its obstacles, the primary one being laziness of these three types, right? and then learning to identify them in our own mind and experience, and then applying the antidotes. So um, there are three types of discouragement that we can encounter that are the most deadly on our path. And the first is discouragement about the goal. Yeah, so here it's the kind of discouragement that says, I can't attain Buddhahood. 
Yeah, everybody can accept me. Have we had that thought? <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, for sure. <laughs> yes? No? Maybe? So, here are the verses from Shantideva telling us that is totally not true. Yeah, these verses say, quoting us, How could I attain enlightenment? I shall not indulge in such discouragement, for the truth declaring Tathagata has spoken this truth. Even flies, mosquitoes, bees, and worms will attain unsurpassed enlightenment, so hard to attain once they generate the power of perseverance. So why should someone like me, born into the human race, recognizing benefit and harm, not attain enlightenment as long as I do not give up the bodhisattva deeds? So yeah, here we're reflecting on Buddha nature, how each and every single sentient being, even flies, mosquitoes, bees, and worms, have this capacity. As long as we have a mind stream, it can be cultivated. I think a lot about that story that Venerable tells many times of Song Rinpoche walking on the beach. Remember this one? Where, you know, most of us go to the beach and it's like, oh, what a beautiful sunset, sunrise, look at the view. Song Rinpoche is going around with his mala and going to all these, like, um, are they anemones? Or, and he's going, sea urchins or yeah, sea anemones. Yeah, I've never actually seen one. So he's putting his mala into each one, you know, to make a connection because he knows that each and every single one can become fully awakened. And so he's standing and putting his mala, <laughs> reciting mantra on them. Yeah. So someone must have done that for us when we were in anemone. <laughs> you know, like, thank you, <laughs> venerable children. Hey. <laughs> yeah, and we do that now for our cats, which are all here, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Or, I mean, we've seen this in the community. Yeah? People take flies out, chant mantra over flies, circumambulate the stupa with the dead mice. You know, because we know, I mean, we have confidence that each and every sentient being can attain full awakening and we want to contribute to that cause. So if that's the case for mice, stink bugs, flies, then that's the case for us. Yeah? <laughs> so that's the first piece, yeah, confidence in what the Buddha said. Yeah, the Buddha is not going to lie to us. He's not going to benefit in any way, right? Why would he want to lead us down the wrong path. Yeah? This is a being who has worked for three countless great eons to develop his mind, her mind, for the benefit of all beings. Right? So he's going to tell us something that's true and beneficial. And then we have confidence in cause and effect, right? that creating the cause, we will experience the result. So that's the first piece. Yeah? Um, stopping discouragement about the goal, about attaining Buddhahood. Now, this was a section in the Lamrim that I hadn't read so closely, um, so I'm just going to read it to you because uh, I found it quite surprising. So here, uh, Lama Tsongkhapa says, So as to this type of discouragement, yeah, since a Buddha's good qualities are infinite and results follow from causes, you must accomplish good qualities and remove faults through limitless avenues while on the path. When you have understood this well, you may become discouraged when you then take a look at yourself. It's like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? So, so now that you know, okay, yes, it's possible to become a Buddha. Yes, yes, yes. And then you learn, oh, okay, the Buddha has, what, 80 beauties and 32 marks, uh, 32 marks, 80 signs. And then to, to generate the merit for even one hair curl requires, I don't know, how many eons and one hair paw, <laughs> all these teachings. So you get some teachings. You start to understand what a Buddha is, the kind of amazing deeds a Buddha can accomplish. And then you look at yourself and you go, hmm. I don't know. 
So that's interesting, you know. Lama Tsongkhapa here says, this type of discouragement about accomplishing the goal only arises when we actually know what the path is. There's a little section here that says, if you are not discouraged now, it may be because you don't actually know what you have to do. <laughs> yeah, he said, that is not a good thing. Yeah, I know, this is me paraphrasing. By reading it, I was like, oh, that's what he's saying. Yeah. He said, in this case, you're not getting discouraged. It's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, it's because you don't actually know what you have to do. So he quotes um, another Tibetan master here called Sharawa. He says, for bodhisattvas who have not engaged in practice, all the bodhisattva deeds seem easy, like looking at a target for arrows, and they do not even get discouraged. At present, we lack a complete practice of the teachings, so we have not even reached the level at which we would have discouragement or self-contempt. <laughs> when we more fully appropriate the teaching, then there is great danger of discouragement and self-contempt. Then a little note from Lama Tsongkhapa here, this is quite true. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it felt a bit like a double-edged sword, but, you know, him saying, well... When such a, a discouragement arises, maybe there's a small part of our mind that can rejoice, like, yeah, maybe it's because we've learned something. It's because we've, for once, seen, whoa, this is what it takes. This is what a Buddha is, and this is what it takes. And then we look at our afflictions, like, hmm, yeah. And then that discouragement arises. And then, because he's warned us, we can say, okay, you know, we can overcome it. Yeah, it seems like a almost a natural part of the path. Yeah. Okay, we can rejoice that we've understood enough to get discouraged, I guess, and then we can identify it and quickly apply the antidotes. Yeah. So, yeah, um, <laughs> rejoicing in our uh, discouragement, <laughs> not the lack of it. <laughs> yeah. Any questions, comments about this, the first Peace, discouragement about attaining the goal. Yes, <laughs> well, simple. It reminds me, maybe a modern-day example is um, people are into extreme sports, and so they might think about climbing a mountain, summiting a mountain. And uh, when you think about that to begin with, you think, oh, piece of cake, you know, I, I run three miles a week or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm in good shape. But then you actually look at what people have to do to train to do uh, a really serious climb like that. I remember seeing a like a part of a documentary of a woman uh, who was training to, I don't remember which mountain she was trying to summit, but she used to train each day pulling like three tires down the street behind her. And um, it, the training she went through was phenomenal. And that was just to get in shape to, to begin, uh, you know, making an attempt on a, a mountain. So for me, that's a great analogy, thinking about, you know, it's, it's a big mountain. If I get to the base camp, wow, that would be an accomplishment. Um, but it's going to take a lot of training. And, and someone's already summited, you know, to know mm -hmm. that the Buddha was just like us at one time, and, and he's done it. And so he's left very explicit instructions how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that comes up later too. Um, when we think about all the effort we put into training for worldly goals, right? Like pulling three tires down the street to climb a mountain, we can definitely muster the same effort to tame our mind. Yeah, which is much bigger task, but, you know, we have that capacity, so never to get discouraged by that. So the next piece, the second kind of discouragement, right, now that we've had some teachings, we've seen what it takes, we can get discouraged about the means to attain the goal, yeah, so we get discouraged about the Dharma, having to practice it, yeah, all the whiny thoughts that come up, like, oh, 
I have to do what? You know, I have to sit in this position. I have to do this, do that, come here. Yeah, but of course, um, engaging in the Bodhisattva deeds um, talks about the more difficult parts of the path. So I'm just going to read this section. So as we've learned, um, Bodhisattvas have to undergo all kinds of difficulties, including giving away their bodies. Right? So we might think, it frightens me that I must give away my feet, hands, and the like. Without, uh, without distinguishing heavy suffering from light, confusion reduces me to fear. For countless tens of millions of eons, I will be cut, stabbed, burned, and torn asunder numerous times without thereby attaining enlightenment. So that's the kind of fear that might arise. Yeah, it's almost inconceivable. You know, sometimes you read these things about like, oh, we're going to... Bodhisattvas who make great vows to go to the hell realms and undergo all kinds of unimaginable, uh, unimaginable sufferings for sentient beings, then the, then the mind might think, eh, I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> right? Like, give away my body parts. <laughs> so Shantideva offers us some antidotes to that. Right? First of all, to think, this suffering which brings about my enlightenment has a limit. Yeah, so the suffering of cyclic existence, yeah, if we don't do anything about our situation, if we keep indulging our afflictions, if we, you know, up and down, up and down, then our suffering actually has no end. Yeah, Venerable often asks us, like, okay, the path looks hard, but what else do you want to do? You know, you have a choice, right? Either you practice or you sit around and you're reborn again and again, like, without, yeah, you're just a bump on the log or, you know, like, you're not getting. You're not going to move anywhere. So you may as well move in the direction of practicing the Dharma. Yeah, that's going to keep moving us towards awakening. And then, even if it's difficult, that suffering has a limit, because eventually we, we will attain the complete cessation of suffering. So Shanti Deva says this is like undergoing the pain of an incision to excise an injurious internal disease. Yeah, all doctors eliminate illness through forms of discomfort which heal it. Thus, I will bear a little discomfort to destroy numerous sufferings. So the sufferings that we go through in our practice, you know, not only will they come to an end, they will actually heal our minds. And then um, Shantideva goes on. He says, The Supreme Physician does not employ ordinary remedies such as those. Yeah, the Buddha is not like an ordinary doctor yeah, because his his Antidotes. He heals limitless chronic diseases with the most gentle treatments. At the beginning, the guide enjoins you to give vegetables and so forth. Later, after you are used to this, you gradually offer even your flesh. So once I come to conceive of my body as being like a vegetable and so forth, what difficulty will there be in giving away such things as my flesh? So here we can take comfort that the Buddha is a skillful and compassionate teacher. Right? He's not going to get us to do things that are traumatizing, difficult, or completely out of our range. Yeah, likewise for our spiritual mentors. Right? You can see how venerable children, for instance, trains each of us differently, knowing where we are, what we can handle. Of course, always pushing to as far as to the edge as you can get. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, you know, there's always the safety to pull back. Yeah. And likewise for the Buddha, this actually is a reference to a sutta. I've not read the original, but you know, it said that there was a woman who was very, very, very miserly. She couldn't even bear the thought of giving a vegetable away. So he taught her to give a carrot from her right hand to her left hand, and then from her left hand to her right hand, you know, passing it like that. 
seeing over time that what is the difference as you pass from one hand of your own to the next to pass it to someone else's hand, right? So the Buddha has countless skillful means. Our teachers have countless skillful means to teach us in this way, very gently, yeah, to help us with where we are and to go step by step. So that helps us to not be discouraged about the Dharma. Yeah, I think Venerable Jigme made this point many times last week that we start where we are. Yeah, or Venerable often says, okay, you read about all the different types of afflictions, you feel overwhelmed, you just start with your grossest one. Start with the one that's getting you in trouble every day. Start with the one that is ruining your relationships. Start with that one. Yeah, no need to yeah, focus on that and then you will see progress over time. And then the last one, uh, is stopping discouragement because wherever you are is a place to practice. So this comes up when someone says, you know, reaching Buddhahood requires taking limitless rebirths in cyclic existence. Yeah, so I will be harmed by the suffering therein. I am not capable of such a thing. So I was thinking um, such a qualm comes up for people who are interested in becoming arhats, uh, here are arhats, yeah, who are thinking, well, you know, it's going to be a lot of suffering to be reborn again and again, yeah, it requires limitless rebirths. So, you know, I'm not really capable of that. Let's just go for the limited goal. Yeah. You're laughing <laughs> because you've had that thought. <laughs> or you've had I have had that thought. I will say that. It's very interesting. I met the Dharma through the Theravada tradition and I remember some kind of imprint was made where like we were taught that Go for stream entry. Yeah, that's the definitely if you're a stream enter, you will be safe. Yeah, you have eliminated the three lower fetters, right, of uh, grasping at personal identity. What is it? Um, attachment to rites and rituals, and I can't remember the third one. Anyhow, so that's what I remember being taught. Yeah, you know, like if you can get to stream entry in this life, you know, you'll be safe. Yeah, you're, you're on the path, you're not going to fall into the lower realms, something like that. So that was honestly what I thought was uh, manageable for myself. Even after I learned about uh, the Mahayana, at some level, that was the motivation I wrote for myself when I first came here. <laughs> like, step by step, you know, I will overcome the five hindrances, I will generate an inferential whatever, whatever of understanding of emptiness that I will combine with the excess level of concentration. Yeah, it was a very dry motivation. <laughs> yeah, I wrote something like that for myself and put it on my meditation table <laughs> and looked at it daily. <laughs> well, it, you know, so your motivation gets you as far as you get. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think <laughs> it's your mother sentient being, <laughs> Mudita, your mother. <laughs> she's feeling safe and calm yeah but what helped me over time I would say is just being around a teacher who's constantly talking about bodhicitta and reflecting on the benefits of that too yeah seeing that it is possible to become a Buddha yeah so why wouldn't we want to do that if we can <laughs> so here Shantideva replies you know to people who are thinking well you know I have to be reborn so many times it's going to be really hard he says, for bodhisattvas, negativity is eliminated. Yeah? Bodhisattvas and high-level bodhisattvas no longer have the cause for suffering. Yeah. So they only experience joy. Yeah. Through knowledge, uh, wait, let's, let's read this verse properly. Since negativity is eliminated, there is no suffering. Through knowledge, there is no lack of joy. 
misconceptions and negativities are what harm the mind and the body. So once we don't have those causes, we don't have the wrong views, we don't have the negative karma anymore, it can't, we're not going to experience suffering of body and mind. So through merit, the body is blissful. Through knowledge, the mind is too. Though remaining in cyclic existence for others' welfare, why should the compassionate ones be disheartened? So thus, after mounting the steed of the enlightenment spirit, which dispels all dejection and fatigue, you proceed from joy to joy. What sensible person would become discouraged? I really like the example Venerable Jigme gave last week. Like, imagine just one day where you never experienced any anger. <laughs> like, what that could be like. Yeah, so that must be what it's like for the bodhisattvas as they proceed on higher and higher levels, right? They spend days, weeks, months without anger. <gasps> wow! <laughs> and we can get there. <laughs> Gilek Rinpoche was very funny in his uh, commentary. He said, you know, you're, you're like driving the Chevrolet of, of Bodhicitta, mounting the steed of enlightenment spirit. <laughs> so the modern version, now you're in the, I don't know cars. I don't, anyway. <laughs> so that's the first piece. Yeah, overcoming these three types of laziness, stopping our discouragement, overcoming these obstacles. And then that helps us to uh, generate joyous effort. So before I move on to the next section, yeah, because other than overcoming in any kind of, um, in all aspects of the path, right, really this is the structure. You think about why it's beneficial to do it. You look at the obstacles. You look at how to overcome the obstacles. And then you also look at what are the positive factors that encourage it to grow. Yep. So that's what we'll move on to. Um, they're called the four forces of favorable conditions right, that we can generate to cultivate joyous uh, effort. Before we move on to that, are there any questions, comments, examples from your personal life? All welcome. I found it very interesting how you pointed out that um, you started with the motivation for meditating of feeling good. And that's kind of like the happiness of this life. And I think that Dharma in the United States, that's kind of what draws people in, you know, especially this mindfulness uh, movement. Um, people are seeking something to feel better. And it's just, I, I can see what maybe what the danger would be if it's presented in that way, because it is just the happiness of this life. And it that motivation may not sustain Dharma practice, you know, for the long term. It could be just a passing fad. Um, or, you know, as soon as somebody has a bad meditation, they might say, well, it's not working anymore and, and give up. Um, I guess it's personal because that's what I came to the Dharma for. And and right now I'm just thinking about how I'm going to make that leap in motivation. Um, but I think, like you said, just being in an environment where you hear about bodhicitta over and over again and you see other people who sincerely have generated this intention to be of benefit to others I, I think yeah maybe I'm hoping that in the long term will turn my mind um, but I think it might be I, I'm seeing a little bit of a struggle already um, yeah so just to see how you know how, how the Dharma has come to this country it it's almost been, that part of it has been lost. Like, focus on the next life, focus on, you know, others and liberation. 
the focus is kind of just like feel better now. Mm. Um, yeah. I guess our teachers have been talking about this quite a bit. Right, Biko Bodhi wrote an article about mindfulness in America. But I do think um, Venerable often says we should be very clear. Yeah, secular mindfulness does not promise more than that. Yeah, it's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's about here and now stress reduction, or mindfulness, secular mindfulness. Right, it's about working with your mind in this life. There's no view of a many lifetimes or anything broader than that. And I think you know that's fine because it's it's not false advertising. It is teaching you what, you know, it's meditation to calm the mind for here and now, right? But when we talk about Buddhist mindfulness, then it's, the picture is much bigger and the goal is very, very different and the result is different as well. I will say what surprised me about meditation and what kept me going was all the unintended side effects. <laughs> um, so what I mean is, so, you know, I was meditating to calm my mind, right? I was very stressed out. I just needed some calm. I would sit maybe three to five minutes a day and I was shocked that it made me you're laughing it was so hard to sit three minutes people you don't know what I was like in college man I was so wired all the time like, yoga helped me relax but I would just fall asleep I started meditating because we would do the yoga session and at the end it would be like let's now sit and say om for three minutes and be quiet and I would just go because I, I had never been quiet for three minutes I was always with people I was scheduled to be at five places at one time you know it's like go, 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 go. And suddenly I have to sit and be quiet. My mind would just go, you know. Even watching the clock, you know, I was like, okay, we're going to do 10 minutes. After three minutes. Oh, three minutes. <laughs> I couldn't sit for more than three minutes. But I was amazed that just doing that helped me to be a kinder person. That was the unintended side effect. <laughs> I actually found that when I was involved in um, arguments or, you know, like things that might bring conflict I found that I could pause. No one told me that that was possible. Yeah? But because I was sat and got quiet, I paused and started to look at what was going on in my mind. Yeah? Like, I, it transformed my relationship with my mother. So that was the real piece. You know, where it used to be that I couldn't get out of the house without making some kind of smart comment or arguing with her, like, I'll wear what I want. When I started to meditate, it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> we don't, I don't have to fight with you. I'm not interested in that. I would like us to both have a nice day. <laughs> you can say what you want, you know. I'll wear what you want, that's fine. <laughs> so that was the big surprise, I think. And then when I saw that it was changing my life, then I got quite interested in like, hmm, what else does this do? <laughs> then I started to go to class and find out more. So I don't know, I'm sure you are experiencing un unintended side effects. <laughs> no? The other piece was I had very good teachers, I will say. I feel very lucky you know, teachers that I met along the way, like if I meditated and I thought I had some kind of experience, you know, I went, I, the first Zen retreat I went to, I was like, at the Zen interview telling the teacher, oh, I had this experience and blah, blah, blah. And then in the Zen tradition, they go, yeah, Zen mind, ordinary mind. Yeah. It's like, no big deal. He said, yeah, you were very focused. Okay. <laughs> Keep sitting. And I was like, oh, okay. It's not that I'm special. It's not that some amazing thing happened. Don't expect bliss in every session. It just helped me to see that the practice was about something else, yeah, about calming the mind over time, not about some kind of hit of pleasure or seeing things or hearing things. That might actually mean you are not doing so well, yeah, which I had imagined was like a sign of progress or whatever, you know. 
uh, same venerable children I think so first retreat I was on I was like oh I've seen lights or whatever and she's like mm, yeah okay go back to your session <laughs> so I found that so helpful it just helped me to understand what I had to focus on in, in my practice yeah much harder to work on your anger and attachment than to see bright lights <laughs> while sitting for a long time may just be the sun coming from a different angle <laughs> I'm sorry venerable Tarpa did you have something I, what I was thinking about during this is that um, when I first met Venerable Children, one thing that attracted me to these teachings was she used to use this expression of explore the possibility. Mm-hmm. And so that helped me to kind of open, get in the right frame of mind to explore things. And I don't, I've come to a place now where I'm pretty comfortable with the f- with the fact of, I, of course, like many people came to the Dharma to reduce my own suffering. Mm-hmm. And I also learned some years ago, and I find this continually helpful, that I can recognize my motivations and I can clean them up. Mm-hmm. And what I think over time has happened is that I have seen that, and the best way to do that is to think of others. The best way to do that is to follow this path. And I accept more now that in order for me to even follow this path, I need to deal with my anxiety. I need to deal with having a happy mind each day, trying to keep, you know, and, but I, and I, I make that part of my goal, and I don't have any regrets for that now. That's kind of what came out of last year's retreat for me is like, oh, this is okay. And putting it in the bigger picture of in order to be able to continue practicing this path for a long time, these are the things I need to do. Mm. So I think it, over time, I, I feel like I can encompass all those goals because I've, it's been shown to me by the teachings of Venerable Children and others' examples that actually the best way to do that is to get rid of the self-centered thought, is to get rid of the self-grasping ignorance, is to develop bodhicitta. You know, it's clear to me that that is going to be the best way to do this. And it's going to take a long time, but I don't know. I feel quite more at peace inside. With I don't feel any need to get rid of uh, the aspiration to be able to go through this day more peacefully, mm-hmm. to have more happiness today. You know that I don't feel I don't like suffering. <laughs> that it's miserable to be angry. I don't see any difficulty with that mm-hmm. anymore. I've kind of accepted that, but I find that the thing is, is to bring it in, you know, bring that in to the path rather than rejecting it. So that's been helpful for me personally. Right. And I think too, in, yeah, Venerable talks about that as, that can be our starting point, right? That we expand outwards from, right? Because if we're unhappy today or in pain today, we're unlikely to be, a pleasant person to be around if we can't work with that, right? And then, but keeping that long view in mind. So I think what you said brings us to the next point, really. It sounds to me like you're talking about this power of aspiration, which you generate over time. Yeah, it comes with rep- repetition, with familiarity with the path, right? Then you start to aspire to practice it and to accomplish it. And I love how you described it, right? Like at first, there might be discomfort. It's like, not sure, but over time, listening to the teachings again and again, living this way, meditating on them, it comes to make sense. So 
Yep, that is the first of the four forces. So let me just list the four and then we'll touch on each of them. Uh, they are developing the power of aspiration, the power of steadfastness, the power of joy, and then the power of relinquishment or rest. So these are the four that help us to keep our joyous effort growing. Um, yeah, so let's start with the power of aspiration. Yeah, and it's defined as yearning. Yeah, but here we're yearning for the Dharma. Yeah, this deep wish to practice, as I think Venerable Tarpa just described, right? Where you've thought about it over time and it makes sense to you, so you want to do it. And that's how we generate it, really. It says the root of aspiration, right, is constant meditation on karma, karma's fruitional effects. So let me just read these two verses that Lama Tsongkhapa is quoting. Yeah. So first of all, it's just recognizing why we're in this situation. Yeah. Shantideva says, My present destitution, right, this situation we're in, has arisen from my not aspiring for the teachings both now and in the past. And so who would forsake aspiration for the teachings? The sage declared aspiration the root of all aspects of virtue. So its root, in turn, is constant meditation on karma's fruitional effects. So in um, other books like Meditation on Emptiness and Meditation uh, Guided, what is it, the Genlan Rinpa's book on how to develop calm abiding, it talks about how actually before developing aspiration, the basis of it is cultivating faith yeah, or what we might call confidence, right? especially confidence in cause and effect that if we create certain causes, we experience certain results. Right? So here Shantideva is talking about how it works in two ways. Yeah, looking at how, okay, if I'm quite miserable now or experiencing unsatisfactory conditions, what's the cause? So it comes back to um, what Venerable Jigme was talking about in the BBC today too. Right? The cause is not someone out there. The cause is something in my own mind. The affliction in my mind, causes that I've created in past lives or even in my recent past, right? that's what's the cause of my experience right now. So when we recognize how cause and effect are working, then we see that we need to practice the Dharma. We need to transform our minds if we want to experience happy results. So, I mean, it's not an easy piece to develop, for sure. <laughs> Ryan is shaking his head in discouragement. <laughs> so I think for me, anyhow, I, I like uh, working on faith. How's that? Yeah, the precursor to aspiration. At least I spent a lot of time on that because it is also said that faith is a powerful um, antidote to laziness, yeah, especially laziness of discouragement. Right? That's the mind that's like, mm, can't do anything. Okay, the antidote is to have some confidence, develop some faith. So there are three types of faith, right? Yeah, there are three types of many things. Yeah, three, three, three. But so with the three types of faith, right? The first is to develop the faith of clarity or ins or inspired faith. I see that's the term Venerable is using in her book with His Holiness, right? The faith that looks at the qualities of the three jewels and admires them, right? They're very inspiring. So spending time reflecting on what is a Buddha, what can a Buddha accomplish, what are all the good qualities that we want to develop, how these beings did it. Right. Um, Venerable mentions in her teachings at DFF in 93, she says, you can read practitioner biographies. And that's a powerful way to develop our, our confidence, reading things that ordinary people have done in their practice and 
what they have accomplished. And then we can develop the faith of conviction after that, seeing that, okay, how did they accomplish those qualities? They practiced the path. They created the causes, they experienced the results. So that's how we start to develop some conviction and cause and effect. Or just seeing it in our own experience, right? Like we do something virtuous, we feel happy in that moment. Hmm, maybe there's a relationship there. And then when we've done this over time, then we have the faith that's aspiring faith. And I think that links up with the power of aspiration. We start to really wish to do this as much as we can. So, yeah, that's the faith of aspiration. Sorry, the power of aspiration. Let me just read these four little verses um, related to that from Shantideva as well. So Shantideva says, This is our aspiration. I will destroy the immeasurable faults of myself and others. To destroy each fault will take an ocean of eons. But if I cannot see in myself even a fraction of the effort needed to terminate a fault, I am a source of measureless suffering. Why does my heart not break? So he's saying here, you know, we have these vast aspirations, right? If we get discouraged, if we can't even see a little bit of effort in ourselves, the willingness to put that effort in, we become a source of measureless suffering. I mean, that's kind of a sobering thought, yeah? It's like, if, it's like if you just sit there and say, yeah, I'm angry, can't do anything about it. Okay, just going to be angry for the rest of my life. Going to go around saying whatever I want, whenever I feel like it to whoever is making me upset that day. And We become a source of measureless suffering for ourselves and others. Right? And then I think when we recognize this, that this is what the afflictions, um, that's the effect of our afflictions just in this life. Our heart breaks. Yeah? Our compassion arises, I would think. Yeah? I think also, at least for um, Westerners, if we um, make some progress and yet we don't acknowledge it or we don't see it or it's not good enough, that that also is the same kind of mm. um, keeping ourselves so stuck uh, in what we're doing. So, so we're making some progress, but we're not even uh, present with it to see that we're changing. Mm. Thanks. Yeah, so that's a different way of reading those first two lines, right? Recognizing in ourselves, like, hey, we do have this joyous effort. We are doing something good. And if we can't recognize that, then we just keep putting ourselves down. And then we are a source of measureless suffering for ourselves and others. Yeah. And then our heart breaks. Yes. I mean, this is a really difficult one, I think, you know. But we, we can overcome our discouragement. Yeah. So that's the first part. Yeah. And then Shantideva continues, I will accomplish numerous good qualities for myself and others. To cultivate each good quality also requires an ocean of eons. But I have never conditioned myself to even a mere fraction of a good quality. Somehow I have obtained this life. It is appalling to waste it. So I think here again, it's just another way to think to encourage us to practice. But really when I think about, you know, how much time have I spent? I mean, when I think about my whole life, how much time have I spent cultivating good qualities, actively 
not to not to fall into discouragement here, but you know, relative. I, I just think about all the effort I put into memorizing songs, <laughs> all the songs you know by heart, <laughs> or all the time spent. I don't know. Passing math tests and all the all the human effort put into things that I never never really believed in. Yeah, so when we recognize that and we know that we can choose now to condition ourselves to kindness, to compassion, then we won't want to waste our time at all. Yeah, and that we can do it in every single moment, moment by moment. Okay, so that's aspiration. Let's speed along. <laughs> The next is developing the power of steadfastness. And Lama Tsongkhapa here gives a very nice definition, so I'm just going to read it straight. Yep. So developing the power of steadfastness means that you bring to conclusion without turning back anything at which you joyously persevere. So how do you do that? First, do not try to do everything. <laughs> Examine the situation carefully. Boy, I wish I had heard this <laughs> a lot earlier in my life. You know, I think maybe we all do. <laughs> Don't try to do everything. Stop and think first. If you see that you can do it, you engage in it. Whereas if you cannot do it, you do not engage in it. You should not even start in the first place things that you will do for a while and then discard. The reason is that if you become habituated to giving up in the middle what you have committed yourself to do, then through this conditioning, you will in other lives again abandon your commitment to the training, etc. So here I think it's it's actually very humbling to read this, yeah, because for sure it's my arrogant mind that's like, yes, I can do blah blah blah, making all kinds of promises or commitments. And then when you if we have a clear sense of what our abilities are and what we're capable of at any given time, then we don't get into that. Right? We know quite clearly what we can do, what's beneficial to do. Yeah. And we don't dig holes like that where we start something virtuous and then midway give it up and create that kind of what it's saying here, you're creating the cause to give up virtuous activities. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we push ourselves to the wall. Yeah, like Venerable said um, many times, like sometimes we sign up or volunteer for things and then life happens, other commitments come up. But we can be responsible and find other people to take our place. We, it is our responsibility to go and tell the people involved, you know, that we can't do it. Like, don't just disappear which I have done many times out of fear. So this is an important one too for all of us to work on. And for sure, when I feel this courage, I think about that. It's like, hmm, do we want to dis create the cause to not finish the path to awakening? I don't think so. I'm going to keep going. I think one thing that helped me a lot with this steadfastness piece too um, was watching Venerable teach the 108 verses. Uh, no, it was the Gems of Wisdom. It was that BBC series, you know, she was teaching these 108 verses called the Gems of Wisdom, and she would do one a day. And I was like, 108? When will we ever finish? But we did. <laughs> she just did one a day over time, and we finished 108. And I was like, oh, it can be done. You know, there, I mean, I'm just very impatient as a person. Yeah. Or like, okay, project-based, uh, pro you know, you do short projects, should be done in three months. Yeah. So when I see her just going slowly like that one a day and it gets done and so many people benefit, then that, that was what shifted my mind to think, okay, we can do a little bit a day and slowly, slowly it's going to work out. As long as we don't stop, we just keep moving in the right direction. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. She's been working on these books with His Holiness for what, 20 years? 
more? At least 20 years, yeah. Never giving up. Yep. And she's still doing it. Okay, so we're running short of time, so I'm just going to jump to the last two. <laughs> so the power, the third point is to develop the power of joy. So here in engaging in a bodhisattva's deeds, it's a very nice verse. It says, like those who want the pleasure that results from play, bodhisattvas are passionate about any activity they have to do. Insatiable, they take joy in their work. So we're trying to have the attitude of being like children who engage in play without being satiated. That's how we feel about doing virtuous deeds. Yeah, so that's something quite marvelous to aspire towards. Yeah, <laughs> it's such a silly example coming up. Like this week, Venerable Yeshe is not here and she asked me to please clean the cat litter. <laughs> I do not feel joyous effort around that. But it benefits the cats. It benefits you and me sitting here now not smelling the cat poo. <laughs> So we can develop a joyful mind, picking out the cat poo like a child at play. <laughs> Anyhow, you know, so we're trying to turn our mind around, yeah, to see, yes, these are activities that benefit people. And then here, part of it too, it's not getting sucked in by the low-grade pleasures of this life. Yeah, we're not sucked in anymore by, you know, I just want to like zone out and watch a three-hour movie and not really think about anything. Instead, we think, oh, why don't I spend my time doing something that will benefit myself and others? Okay, maybe it's a meaningful movie. I don't know. But you, you see what I mean? You're, you're, because your priorities have shifted, you just take joy in cultivating virtue. Okay, so that's the joy piece. And then there's an, a verse here says, Thus, in order to finish the work, I shall enter into it just as an elephant scorched by the midday sun comes upon a pond and plunges in. So that's how we feel about taking out the cat poop. Yes! <laughs> oh, yes! Yes, 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 yeah. Yes, Keshe Dado really embodies joyous effort, I think. Yeah, he recently was here to teach and he was telling us how he loves making offerings in the day and... You know, he's like doing a magic dance that nobody can see. Trust me, me at 5.15 trying to get some apples to the hall. Sometimes it's like, it's 5.15. <laughs> Make some offerings. Om Namah Bhagavad. It's good to have structures that help us, I think, to remind us, whoop, you know, this is what our, our mind should be moving in the opposite direction. Okay. And the last one, I think the power that we all would like to engage in as soon as possible <laughs> is the power of rest <laughs> or relinquishment. I actually like this translation better, relinquishment. Yeah, the power of letting go. Yeah, that's in the wisdom of the Kadam masters. Yeah, the best joyous effort is letting go. So what does that really mean? Yeah, it says here, if you become physically or mentally fatigued from your joyous effort or your perseverance, you must rest for a while. Yeah, otherwise, you will become exhausted and very disheartened, which actually becomes then it's going to reduce your joyous effort. And then, but immediately after you have rested, persevere again. And when you have completely finished your earlier activities, do not let this satisfy you. You must joyously persevere at other higher activities. So I think, too, this is a skillful means, maybe, you know, how to work with our own minds, yeah? knowing when we are, when we need to keep going when we're being lazy, and when really we are done, you know, physically and mentally, and it would be harmful to ourselves to keep pushing. No one wants to be around you when you're tired, cranky, and like, why are you asking me to clean the bathroom? And it's like, okay, just go sleep. <laughs> we've, we've all been in that position. Um, 
So I like this advice here. It says, do not overexert yourself, says Lama Tsongkhapa. <laughs> you must avoid both being overly intense and overly relaxed. How? <laughs> he says, so make your effort continuous like a river. So, yeah, that's, I think, linked to steadfastness as well. Yeah? So you don't bite off more than you can chew. It's about clearly knowing what we're capable of, what we have the ability to do within this period of time. And then we just go step by step. Yep. Resting when we have to rest. Okay, so, and it says here, after we have thought deeply about the benefits of joyous perseverance, we have identified what's unfavorable to it, the laziness, the three types of laziness. We apply the antidotes, and then we generate these four powers, right? The power of aspiration, the power of steadfastness, the power of joy. And then it says, well, first, it's interesting, Lama Tsongkhapa talks about those three, right? And then he says, through the power of relinquishment, you become adept at how to joyously persevere. Yep. So that's, you know, knowing when to rest, when to keep going. That just keeps, that's really like the, like the thing we keep, the calibration, the tuning for as we go on this path. Yep. So once we have generated these minds, then we develop the power of being intent on joyous perseverance. Yep. So here, the last part of Shantideva's verses are about just, you know, when we have this armor-like joyous effort, we are fully engaged in benefiting sentient beings, how we just keep, how we keep going. Um, and he says, it's very interesting to me that he employs all these um, military metaphors, so to speak, and I think, too, it's telling us that the, it's not an easy path. Yeah, We're going to meet obstacles along the way. But Shantideva says, As a seasoned warrior approaches a sword fight with an enemy, I shall parry the blows of the afflictions and strongly strike the afflictions, my enemies. So the last section here is about really the kind of attitude we have towards working with our afflictions and practicing the path. Yeah, because that's the first piece of the Bodhisattva deeds. Right, overcoming our afflictions, getting rid of... Um, so here it's like having a warrior-like attitude. Yeah. And our weapons are mindfulness and introspective awareness, is what Shantideva tells us, that we're constantly mindful. It's like that story Geshe Daru told us, right? The archer and the swordsman fighting, right? And then yeah, there's this long battle between an archer and a swordsman, and then the swordsman finally gets distracted and gets shot. And then the... Archer goes, yes, I've, I've, I've shot you. And the swordsman goes, you didn't win. My distraction, my lack of mindfulness was what caused me to, to, to lose. Yeah. So that's what will get us. Yeah. So it's having to apply the mindfulness and introspective awareness again and again along the way. Yeah. And then over time, that helps us to develop pliancy. Right? Our pliancy here meaning that our body and mind are completely serviceable. Uh, the way Genlam Rinpa said it was, our body and mind are efficient in virtue. That's all we're using our body and mind to do. How wonderful that would be. Yep. So, yep, at the end of that chapter, Shantideva tells us, so, in order to have strength for everything before engaging in any activity, I will recall this advice on conscientiousness and then gladly rise to the task. And then just like cotton under the power of a wind that blows to and fro, so I will be driven by enthusiasm. In this way, I will accomplish all. So that's the marvelous benefit of joyous effort. 
and we can, I think here at the Abbey, we have constant uh, opportunities to practice it in every way, whether it's watching our afflictions come up and go, all right, got to work with that one. Or yes, being asked to take out the cat litter or doing things you're uncomfortable with. Those are all opportunities for us to practice, you know, to learn about ourselves and to keep going step by step. Yep. And anytime you see laziness come up, now you know the antidotes and you can take them to the cushion. Because really, I feel that's where we are. I don't know, at least that's where I am. I really struggle with this chapter, honestly, because I, in my own experience, I'm working with the laziness. That's the piece, you know. The aspiration, steadfastness, joy, relinquishment or rest, they still feel like very intellectual or like I kind of know about it. I can find snatches of it in my experience. But I know, um, yeah, it's something to keep working towards. Any last comments, questions? Does someone want to take out the cat litter tomorrow? No, <laughs> no volunteers? No. no, I'll do it. It is my practice. <laughs> oh, this is the Lamrim Chenmo, the great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment. And there are many wonderful commentaries on it. Yeah, this is volume two. Okay, so let's dedicate. <laughs> but maybe we can sit quietly for a moment just to digest these teachings. And we can visualize all the positive energy we've generated this evening as brilliant light at our hearts that we are sending out into the entire universe to all beings who are feeling discouraged or overwhelmed or despondent. Wishing for them to meet the Dharma and be able to develop the courage to overcome their afflictions. So that all of us, having overcome the afflictions, will have this incredible, vast space in our minds to realize our full potential by becoming Buddhas for the sake of all sentient beings. 